Stained glass windows have always been a defining feature in the Christian church. The earliest evidence of stained glass windows being used in church construction dates back to 675 AD in St. Peter's Monastery. Since then, this beautiful architectural feature has dominated sacred spaces of worship for the majority of church history. Though beautiful in their own right, stained glass windows had a purpose much larger than aesthetic. In addition to being a special way to light the church, these windows would serve as the primary method of teaching written stories of the Bible to an illiterate world. This is why I believe stained glass serves as the perfect illustration for the church. A stained glass window. It begins as nothing more than a collection of unique, broken pieces of glass on their own, each individual piece, possesses no uh, useful or redeeming purpose. However, these broken pieces of glass and the creative eye of the craftsman, they become essential. Every piece becomes essential to the design. You see, when the craftsman finishes the process of assembling these pieces of glass together, he will have created a beautiful window that communicates a wonderful story while also radiating, radiating light in a beautiful and unique way. And in the same way, the church, you know the church is nothing more than a collection of many unique, broken individuals. That Jesus is doing what? That Jesus is assembling together for two purposes. One, to communicate his story of redemption and secondly, to be a conduit by which he can shine his light to a dark and ailing world. Now, though the purpose of each window, each stained glass window, will vary depending on the color and the type of glass that the master chooses to use, the process of creating any stained glass window, it begins with an essential first step, drawing out a blueprint. You see, every subsequent step to the creative process, cutting and polishing the glass, soldering together each individual piece, welding the outer frame, adding a sealant to the finished structure, all of these, these other steps, they become frivolous without a solid blueprint. See, the book of Acts provides just that. The book of Acts is the blueprint that Jesus has set up for the church. Now keep in mind, the blueprint for the church is universal. It's universal because the church has been designed to communicate really only one message. Every church has been created to communicate one central idea. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that being said, this doesn't mean that every church refracts the light into the world in the same way. We might all, every church, communicate the same message, but we might do so in different ways. As with any stained glass, the style of the church, the way we shine the light into the world, is largely determined upon the varying kinds of people that Jesus chooses to assemble together for that time and for that purpose. And yet, every church should communicate the same message and shine the same light 
even if it radiates a little different from church to church. But the only way any church will be successful in reaching the lost with the gospel is if we align ourselves with the blueprint. See, studying the blueprint for the church, the blueprint for the church laid out in this book, the book of Acts, it's important for us for two important reasons. First, historically, the church has rarely modeled the blueprint. This blueprint we find in the book of Acts, sad to say, the church has failed more times than it's probably succeeded into living up to this ideal. Now, it's only fair to point out that the church has made a big impact and has provided an incredible contribution to the world. I mean, its reach has been expansive. The church has influenced positively government, education, science, medicine, not to mention the incredible philanthropic works done in the name of Christ are too numerous to even be listed. Things like ending slavery and caring for the disenfranchised, relief work, etc. The church has done a lot of good, good things. And yet, and yet, church history presents many dark moments. Something we shouldn't run from. The Inquisitions, the Crusades, Salem witch trials, dissenters being burned at the stake, democide, slavery, persecution of gays, restriction of contraception, abortion bombings, sexual abuse by Catholic priests, the list could go on and on and on, have all been done in the tent known as the church. Comedian George Carlin, he said, I'm completely in favor of the separation of church and state. My idea is these two institutions screw us up enough on their own. So both of them together is certain death. I think many of us would agree. If you want to know what the church was designed to be, look not at the way the church has operated throughout church history, but instead go back to the blueprint. Go back to Acts. If you want to know what the church was designed by Jesus to be, the function it was supposed to accomplish, the impact in the world it was supposed to have, yes, you can look at the church throughout history and point out instance after instance of where it's done the opposite. But go back to the blueprint, the design, the way that Jesus structured it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to find a perfect church in the book of Acts, but you will find a successful one. The other reason that we should look at the blueprint, that we should spend time studying this book, and in addition to getting back to the blueprint, the second reason is that today, the church finds itself ineffective when it comes to reaching the world. That's another inescapable reality. Do you realize the church, as an institution, turns off a lot more people than I think it attracts? The truth is, I think that's one of the things that people like about Calvary 316. Talking with each, each of you over and over and over again, I hear the same story. I was burnt out on church. I was done with church. I didn't think I could find a church that I could connect to. And then I walked through the doors of Calvary 316 and something clicked. Something was different. Something was real. You see, the church as an institution, it turns a lot of people off to the message of Jesus. The Hartford Institute of Religion Research states that 40% of Americans say they go to church weekly, but data suggests that less than 20% are actually attending. In other words, 
more than 80% of Americans are finding more fulfilling things to do on the weekend than going to church. The Barna Research Group found three of five adults who, attend, who don't attend church are self-described Christians. More people who don't attend church say that they're a Christian, though they don't find the importance of church. 37% of unchurched Americans, they cite, quote, painful experiences with the church or people within the church as the reason that they, that they don't attend. A survey of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago revealed that 41% of Americans attend worship services once a year or less. And the nevers, those people who will never go to church, have increased from 15% in 1970 to 29% in 2013. In an article entitled 13 Issues for Churches in 2013, researcher Tom Rainier, he says that between 8,000 and 10,000 churches will close this year alone. And to make matters worse, between 2010 and 2012, more than one half of churches in America added no new members. The church as an institution is turning a lot of people off to Christ. Peter Brookshaw wrote an article titled 10 Reasons Why People Don't Go to Church. Let me run through the 10 reasons. First, the perception of Christians is one of judgmentalism and negativity. Two, church is boring. Three, church is exclusive. Four, Christians are homophobic. Five, people don't like organized religion. Six, churches are full of hypocrites. Seven, the church just wants your money. Eight, life is better without religion. Nine, Christians live on another planet and wear brown sweaters. That's my favorite, I think. <laughs> and 10, people don't have time. William D. Hendricks in his book, Exit Interviews, he writes, despite glowing reports of surging church attendance, more and more Christians in America are feeling disillusioned with the church and other formal institutional expressions of Christianity. I couldn't agree more. The Pew Research Center spotlights the main reason, the main reasons that people don't go to church. 24% cite personal priorities. This includes 16% who say they're just too busy to go. 24% cite practical difficulties as the reason they don't go to church, things like work or poor health conditions or transportation needs. 37% though, according to Pew Research Center, they don't go to church because they don't believe attending church is important to the Christian faith. Some explain this growing trend as being the result of the growing tide of secularism. I mean, people look at Miley Cyrus and say, that's what's wrong with this culture. That's why people don't go to church. I mean, what can you really do? And yet, can we honestly say the conditions that today's church faces was any worse than the first century church? I mean, can we really say that our culture is any worse than Roman culture? I mean, is it the culture that's the problem? Or instead, is it the church? In spite of Jewish religious resentment, Roman 
paganism and persecution. And the span of 300 years, the church grew from zero members to including the numerical majority of the Roman world. By 2060 AD, 260 AD, Christians constituted, at a, at a minimum estimate, 40% of the Roman Empire. And the truth is that Christianity spread peacefully. It wasn't like you were forced to convert or die. Christianity peacefully dominated every other competing ideology, and it grew throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire. And this is before Constantine. According to Acts chapter 17, in less than 30 years, detractors of Christianity as far away as Thessalonica, which was a coastal town in Greece, referred to Christians as those who have turned the world upside down. Can we say that of the church today? See, the question we need to ask ourselves before we get to the book of Acts, setting the stage for why we should look at the book of Acts, the question, the relevant question, is the problem with church attendance the moral decline of our culture? Or is it the reality the church has diverged away from the blueprint provided in the book of Acts? I would say it's the latter. Let me give you an example of this to prove my point. Tom Rainier's research found, check this out, 82% of the unchurched are likely to attend church if they're invited by a trusted friend or a relative, while only 2% of church-going people invite someone to church in a given year. According to research, 82% of the lost will go if they're invited by a Christian friend or relative, and yet only 2% of Christians take the Great Commission seriously. Is there any surprise that our church is failing to reach our culture? A.W. Tozer had this sad indictment of today's church. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. However, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would immediately stop and everyone would know the difference. See, the truth is that Acts, it's essential for us to look at, to emulate, to model, if we want to fulfill the Great Commission. If we want to be found faithful servants, we should look at Acts and the blueprint that's established there and model not just ourselves off of it, but we should model our church, which is why I find that our study of Acts will be so essential for Calvary 316, especially as a young church that's growing and developing and finding our way, may we not do it on our own intellect or our own creativity or our own ingenuity, but may we simply look at Acts, Jesus's blueprint, who's the pastor of our church and emulate ourselves off of it. I would prefer that than my ingenuity. Acts. Think about it for a moment. Think about if Acts, as a book, didn't exist in your Bible. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be reading through the Gospels, to get to the conclusion of John, to turn the page and find yourself in Romans. Think about how confusing that would be. Without explanation, 
the location, the scene of activity shifts abruptly. From where? From Jerusalem to the center of the empire, Rome. The principal player goes from being the disciples to a guy you know nothing about named Paul. God shifts his attention from the Jewish nation of Israel to now the Gentile church. That would be really confusing without any kind of explanation. Not to mention for centuries, people traveled to the temple to encounter God. Now, we see that people as the temple are traveling across the globe, bringing God to the masses. Not to mention, think about it. Without the book of Acts, you get to the epistles, all these letters to churches, but you would be reading them without any kind of historical background or context for how they came to be in the first place. See, the reality is the book of Acts, it serves as the pivot point for the entire Bible. Thus, it demands our attention. Now, before we get into our study, like we did with Mark before, I want to establish kind of a methodology for how we're going to approach the book. Lots of different pastors approach the text in a lot of different ways. I'm just going to let you know up front how I'm going to address the text to keep us on point, logically established, and kind of working at a reasonable pace. Our methodology, there's three big points here. First, we'll set the scene. This means we'll describe the setting, the atmosphere, we'll develop character profiles of the people that are included in the story. We'll discuss the political backdrop when it's relevant, the religious climate when relevant. We'll track the geographical movements of Paul, the church, as people are moving around. So we'll set the scene. Then we'll unpack the text. This means that we'll consider the original language, the scriptural context, examine any historical influences, cultural ramifications, etc., at this point, we'll address questions, concerns, controversies, before finally we'll uncover the meaning. So we'll set the scene, unpack the text, and then uncover the meaning. We're going to do this in three ways. First, obviously, what is the personal application for me? Like, what does the text mean for me? What is God trying to say to me? And then we'll look at what are the social implications what is God saying to our culture? What is he saying to the, the climate that we see here in America? And then thirdly, we'll address what God is saying to Calvary 316. We'll make it personal to our church community. Now, in order to understand the book, you need to answer two questions right from the beginning. I'm big into background. I'm big into authorship. I think understanding who wrote it, who he wrote it to, these things are important if we're really going to understand what's being communicated. First, our intro question. Who wrote Acts? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus. Now, though we have no autograph that's provided here in Acts to let us know who penned the book, as a matter of fact, it kind of begins with the assumption we know who I is. The former account I made, O Theophilus. So there's no autograph, but the assumption of our author is that you already know who he is based upon his former account. Now we believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts. The same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts. And there seems to be two solid biblical clues that establish this man as our author, as mentioned, first, 
the author wrote a former account to Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you, but the Gospel of Luke opens this way. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The former account mentioned by the author here in Acts seems to be, or it appears to be, the Gospel of Luke. And this provides substantive evidence that Luke, the undisputed author of that gospel, also wrote Acts. You should also note that there are 40 unique Greek words that we find in Luke that we find in Acts, which indicates that the style, the word usage, that whoever wrote Luke wrote Acts, and since we know Luke wrote Luke, it's only logical that he wrote Acts. Understand, in the first century, books were written on papyrus scrolls. And what's interesting about these scrolls is that they they had a maximum length. The maximum length, just by a practical nature of it reached a certain point, it was too big to carry, too bulky. The maximum length of those that we've discovered was 35 feet. At that point, the scroll would become too bulky to carry, which is why a lot of the books of the Bible are limited to the length that they are. It's a practical aspect to it. Most view Luke and Acts as being one book with two separate volumes. Trying to combine both accounts would mean that the scroll would be too long, so you would have two volumes of one book. Now, the second biblical clue that kind of points to Luke as being our author is that we know the author of this book was a member of Paul's entourage. In Acts chapter 16, the personal pronoun they as the author's describing Paul and his missionary journeys, he's using this this pronoun, they, all over the place, all the way up to the point in Acts 16 where he transitions from they to we, which indicates that the, the author joined Paul's missionary journey. Acts 16, verse 8, I'll read it for you. So passing by Misa, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood, pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we, meaning that the author, came to Troas, joined Paul's journey, and then went with him to Macedonia. Though the New Testament provides very little information about Luke, what we do know about him seems to reinforce the idea that he was our author. First, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Philemon, verse 24, Paul says that Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers. Early church fathers said that Luke was from the Hellenistic city of Antioch, which is located in present-day Syria. This detail is significant because we know that the Apostle Paul, his headquarters, his home church, his base of operations was the same city, the same church. Luke would not only travel with the Apostle Paul 
on at least one and a half of his missionary journeys. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 indicates that Luke remained with Paul in Rome as his personal assistant until his ultimate martyrdom. The second thing scripture tell us, uh, tells us about Luke that reinforces him being our author is that we know he was an educated physician. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul describes Luke as the beloved physician. This means that Luke, our author, he's educated, he's intelligent, and he's proficient in Greek, which is an essential characteristic of anyone who could claim authorship of the book of Acts. It's been pointed out that the Greek that we find in this book, it is the highest quality and style of anything else found in the New Testament. Matter of fact, you can make the argument that the classical Greek we find in Luke and Acts is second to none in history. Structurally speaking, Acts, it reads, if you read Greek, it reads more like a novel found in Greek tradition. Whereas Mark, the book we previously looked at, he kind of presented the Greek language in a very crude, rudimentary type of quality. So we know our author had to have been educated, and Luke is a physician, therefore he's educated. The formal Greek indicates that the intended audience for Luke's gospel and the book of Acts would have been more cultured, more refined, more educated. We'll get to that in a moment. The third thing scripture tells us about Luke that reinforces his authorship is that he was a Gentile convert. It's pretty obvious from both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that this man was a genuine follower of Jesus. We don't know when he converted. We don't know how he converted. But we know he converted. His writing style, the subject matter, the presentation of the information, it's not from a theoretical standpoint. It's personal for Luke. But we also know that by his name, he's not a Jew. He's a Greek. His name, Lucas, means literally light giver indicates that he was a Gentile. Now, this is important because in addition to the type of Greek presented in Acts, the style of how the subject matter is presented in this book is more consistent with the way the Gentile mind would process information, especially religious information, versus the way a Jew would. I'll give you an example of this. In this book, the author will use the generic word for God 160 times. He will then use a, a Roman-specific term, Lord, 110 times, but he will only use the Jewish title Christ or Messiah 31 times, which means he downplays the Jewish words that would connect, and he upplays those that would connect to the Gentile world. It's important if Luke is our author, which I'm convinced that he is, there's another interesting tidbit. Do you realize that Acts and Luke combined accounts for 25% of the New Testament? Which means that in regards to volume of writing, Luke is the predominant writer of the New Testament. A Gentile wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, including the Apostle Paul, who though wrote more books, didn't write more in volume. Now, quickly, I want to give you just a little bit of information of some non-biblical uh, evidence for Luke's authorship. 
The earliest manuscript we have of the book of Acts dates to 200 AD. It ascribes the work to Luke. The Muratorian Canon, which is the oldest list of New Testament books that dates to 170 AD, it says this, that moreover the Acts of the Apostles are included in one book, for most excellent Theophilus Luke compiled the individual events that took place in his presence. So we have a document dating to 170 that affirms that Luke was the author. All the early church fathers also believed that Luke was the author. Origen, Clement, Jerome, etc. Eusebius of Caesarea does something interesting. He not only says that Luke was the author of Acts, but because the Greek version he had at the time of Hebrews was so similar to Acts in style and word usage, he presented the idea that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews in Hebrew, only to which his assistant Luke translated it into Greek, which might explain why there tends to be debate of the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Lots of evidence that points to Luke being our author. The second question that's important for our understanding of the book, right from the beginning, who in the world is Theophilus? The former account I made, O Theophilus. It's important to know who wrote it. It's also important to know who who he wrote it to for our understanding of the way he approaches the subject matter. And there are four theories to whom Theophilus actually is, the identity of Theophilus. First, some have stated that Theophilus was actually just a guy, just a friend of Luke. And Luke was writing this account to evangelize him, that Theophilus was a guy that wasn't a Christian. Luke wrote in kind of an evangelical way. Luke historically is known as Luke the Evangelist. Secondly, People have theorized that Theophilus is not a person at all, but Theophilus was a symbolic way of addressing creatively all of Christianity, kind of using code. The word Theophilus, the name Theophilus, it's a Greek compound word meaning friend or lover of God. And so in essence, people will say that the book's not written to any one person, but it's only written to people who love God. Since you and I love God, the book is written to us. The third theory is that Theophilus might have been Luke's slave master. In the first century, wealthy families owned personal doctors. It wasn't much like it was today. The theory is that Luke was a physician, was owned by Theophilus as kind of the the family doctor. So Luke is the slave of Theophilus. It could be that as a Christian man, Theophilus sent Luke, his primary care doctor, to care for the Apostle Paul, who dealt with severe medical ailments. There seems to be some evidence to point to this. They would all be living in the same town, attending the same church, connected as brothers. But I think that there is a fourth theory that is the correct theory. One that I tend to gravitate towards because I think it explains a lot more of the book itself. And that is that Theophilus was a Roman official overseeing Paul's trial. In the introduction of the gospel of Luke, he provides a title for Theophilus that was only used for those who held important positions in the Roman Empire. We know this because of other writings that substantiate this idea. The phrase, most excellent Theophilus, indicates that he was a Roman official. It should also be pointed out, 
that in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, anytime you run across a Roman official in the text, in the narrative, they're always presented in a positive light, in kind of a positive way. If, if, if the book of Luke and, and the book of Acts are defense briefs, if they're being presented on Paul's behalf, you wouldn't want to speak ill of Roman officials. And so we see this positive light being presented of those who would happen to be Roman. It seems likely that since Acts ends with Paul awaiting trial before Nero, that the combination of these two books were actually meant to be an official defense brief presented on Paul's behalf to a Roman official, giving him background on the case. Seems consistent with what we've already mentioned concerning the book, but there is some evidence to support this theory scripturally. In Acts 21 verse 17, Luke arrives with the Apostle Paul into Jerusalem. However, Paul's arrested. He appeals for his trial to be presented in Rome. They send him on his way. Now, at that juncture, Luke doesn't go with Paul. Acts 17, verse 1, means that Luke doesn't accompany Paul to Rome. However, we'll find later on in Colossians that Luke is now with Paul in Rome while Paul's under house arrest. So why would Paul's traveling companion travel with Paul to Jerusalem? Paul's arrested. He appeals his case to Rome. During the two-year hiatus between there and when now we know Luke is back with Paul, like what happens? I think it seems likely that during these two years, Luke would have been provided plenty of time to write the gospel and the book of Acts as a defense brief. Rome. Rome allowed people to worship their own gods freely. It was, it was kind of an interesting characteristic of the Roman Empire. As long as your religion proved to be peaceful, they would allow you to worship God as you want. As long as you're paying taxes, there's no unrest, etc., etc., etc. Now, they had already ruled on Judaism, which is why they allowed the Jews to worship the way that they did. There was no Roman restriction of the way that the Jews worshipped. And yet, early on with Christianity, Rome didn't care because Christianity was viewed as being just a sect of Judaism. And because Christianity was a sect of Judaism, and Judaism had already been approved by Rome, there was no need to look into Christianity, but something happens. Christianity begins to spread where? Outside of Jewish communities. It begins to spread into Gentile, Gentile communities, all the way to the fact that it impacts Caesar's own household, that there are Gentiles now converting to Christianity. And now because it's beginning to be viewed as its own thing, not a sect of Judaism, Christianity needs to be ruled on officially by Rome, which might explain why Paul does what he does at the end of the book. Please realize Paul stands trial before Nero, not just to determine his role in the spread of Christianity, but he stands trial to defend the legalities of Christianity as a whole. And this would explain a few things about Luke and Acts as a defense brief. It explains why the Gospel of Luke presents the story of Jesus and the formation of the Christian faith, while Acts focuses on how Christianity spreads, how something that began in Jerusalem would quickly spread throughout the Roman Empire. The expansion of Christianity, it's remarkable. It also explains why Acts then focuses more than half of the narrative on the role of the Apostle Paul and doesn't spend time providing a full history 
of the church during this 30-year period. If, if the gospel of Luke and, and then the book of Acts, if this thing is, is, is designed to just tell the story, if it's just to be history, then why would you spend all of this time discussing Paul and his movements? Why not also focus on some of the other things we know are happening within Christianity? I'll give you an example of this. I find it fascinating. The gospel of Luke, it dominates the story of Jesus and his ministry where? In Galilee, in Judea, Jerusalem. It's where it focuses. And yet there's only one mention of the church in Galilee at all throughout the book of Acts. That seems weird to me. If you're trying to tell the whole history here, you would include more about what's happening in Galilee where Jesus spent his time. Acts 9.31 is the only point in which we have mention of the church movement in Galilee and Samaria. You see, as a defense brief, Luke, he sets out to communicate to Theophilus three important things. This is the subject matter here we find in Acts. That first, politically, Christianity was not a threat to the Roman Empire. It wasn't a threat to Roman governance. That Christianity would be peaceful. That Jesus' message was one of love, not social unrest. So politically. Second, socially, Luke's trying to communicate to Theophilus that Christianity would not foster unrest within the empire. That it wasn't about revolution, as was an accusation of the Jews about whom? Of Jesus, the founder of the faith. But thirdly, legally, Luke wants to show that Christianity was actually the true fulfillment of Judaism. That it wasn't a new thing, but the fulfillment of something that was. A new manifestation, but didn't need to be ruled on because it was the fulfillment of the Christian faith. Now, the principal implication of Luke writing the book of Acts to be presented as a defense brief of Christianity is that the book of Acts, this is why this is important, the book of Acts should be viewed as verifiable history. Matter of fact, when we study sections of the book of Acts that you're going to find to be movements of Paul, other cities, why do I care? The compilation of the information should increase our faith because it is one of the most solid, provable works of historical antiquity ever produced. Now, though Luke was not present during the ministry of Jesus, he states in the introduction that we read at the beginning of his gospel that he set out to do what? To write an orderly account to Theophilus using the reports of only eyewitnesses. In regards to Acts, he continues this methodology, including only the most verifiable events as provided through eyewitness testimony of which himself was to be included. Since Luke is writing a historical account of events for the use of, the, of a court of law, it was of the utmost importance that his account had to be thorough, verifiable, factual, and able to withstand a cross-examination. And as a result, we've been left with one of the most dependable histories of a specific time period ever recorded. Professor of Classics at Uckland University, he wrote this. 
He said, for accuracy of detail, for evocation of atmosphere, Luke stands, in fact, with the greatest of all historians. He actually goes on to list several. He says that the Acts of the Apostles is not a shoddy product of pious imagining, but a trustworthy record. He continues by saying that it is the spade work of archaeology which first revealed this truth. I want to close by telling you how the book of Acts practically impacted a skeptic, a hardened atheist by the name of Sir William Ramsey. In the early 1900s, British archaeology, uh, archaeologist uh, William Ramsey hated Christianity, hated everything to do with God, and he wanted to, to discredit the faith. And so what he did is he, by looking at the book of Acts, he decides that he was going to take what's described in Acts, places, people, locations, and he was going to use it as kind of a blueprint to go out and to dig. Looking at places, Acts claims that this was here, this city was here, I'm going to dig here, find that it's not, disprove the book of Acts. Over and over and over again, Acts proved verifiable. It actually became a template for some of the most incredible discoveries of Hellenistic culture and all of mankind. William Ramsey, he wrote this, he said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed among the greatest of all historians. The book of Acts, Sir William Ramsey used it to try to set out to prove Christianity a farce, and in the end, he gave his life to Jesus. See, the book of Acts, it's a blueprint for the church, for our church, but the nature of how it's written should increase your faith, should deepen your love for Jesus, and should motivate us that if we follow this blueprint, our church, and us as the individual broken pieces of glass that Jesus has assembled together, that we together can accomplish great things for the cause of Christ. If what we see in the book of Acts is true, then what happens in the book of Acts can also happen today through you and through myself. And that is why we're gonna spend the next year or so studying this book. Now, I covered seven words. And you're thinking, a year? Seven words? A year? No, we're gonna be here for like the next decade. I promise you that we will be moving through the book of Acts at a reasonable but good clip. Just because we took seven words this morning doesn't mean that that's the pattern moving forward. I love the history. I love authorship. I love establishing these things up front. I think it's important. But next Sunday, we'll begin to look at some fascinating details, looking at the book of Acts and what it says to the church, all kinds of fun things. So if you join me, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.